0: You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is season eight, episode 12.
1: The aesthetic universe for me is a way to talk about the world that basically just does away with that need to explain things away. The world's not made of atoms. The world is made of the same substance as a story is made of.
0: J.F. Martel is a Canadian writer, filmmaker, and podcaster. He has directed a number of French and English documentaries for Canadian television as well as created several dramatic short films. His writing has appeared on Reality Sandwich, The Finch, Metapsychosis, and in anthologies published by Tarcher Penguin, North Atlantic Books, and Intellect Books. J.F. Martel's book, Reclaiming Art in the Age of Artifice, was published in 2015 by Evolver Editions. The back cover tells us the book is an essential reading for visual artists, musicians, writers, actors, dancers, filmmakers, poets, and anyone who has been deeply moved by a work of art. I've read JF's book, and I have to agree. His ideas about art as an inborn human phenomenon that precedes the formation of culture resonates with my own thoughts on creativity as an inherent part of our spiritual and human experience. In this episode, I speak with J.F. about many of the concepts in his book, including his thoughts on viewing the universe primarily as an aesthetic universe. I'm excited as well to announce that J.F. will be one of our keynote presenters for this year's The Breath in the Clay virtual experience, taking place March 17 through 21, 2021. You can find out more about The Breath in the Clay and our theme of re-enchantment at thebreathandtheclay.com. This is my conversation on the aesthetic universe with filmmaker and writer, J.F. Martel. J.F., thank you so much for joining me on Makers and Mystics today. I'm looking forward to this conversation with you.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a
0: real pleasure. I've been listening to Weird Studies for quite a while now, and I love the conversations that you are unpacking on that program. Oh, well, thanks. (laughs) We never know where we're going next, so it's it's always a surprise for us, too. (laughs) That's why I like it. I think the first episode I listened to was when I was studying Marcel Duchamp for an artist profile that we did here on Makers & Mystics, and you had a long conversation about Duchamp that I really enjoyed. Oh, cool! Yeah, that's
1: that's one of our more more controversial episodes. Uh, some people <laughs> some people agreed with us. Some people didn't. Um, I'm not even sure where I fall on uh, Dushan his contribution. I have I have I have Zushan days and anti Duchamp days. I, I guess I'm right.
0: <laughs> it seems like the controversy around him is escalating these days.
1: Yeah, I've seen him come up a few times. Um, he certainly kind of like laid out the stakes for all to see. He kind of just made a gambit that made it very clear how the question of art should be framed in the twentieth century. Mm-hmm. So. He's an important figure in that regard for sure.
0: It was also your podcast that led me to discover your book, Reclaiming Art in the Age of Artifice. Right. And that's once I read that, I was like, okay, I've got to have a conversation with this guy because I think you've been reading my journals. <laughs> is really what it what it boils down to. <laughs> you got me. <laughs> no, but seriously, and just for our listeners and those that follow the Makers and Mystics podcast, Reclaiming Art in the Age of Artifice is one of my most recommended books that I read in 2020. Hmm. And uh, so I I really do love the ideas that that you're tackling and some of the questions that you're asking in this book. And I'd love to dive into some of that with you in our conversation today. Well, I'd be happy to. Um, The book's been around for five years, and uh, I was thinking about that today.
1: Uh, And I mean, some of the ideas have evolved, but weirdly you know whenever i happen to open the book i'm i'm usually my reaction is like oh i thought of that already oh well <laughs> you know like like there's it's it's still it still holds up in in and ter- you know in my terms like in terms of what where i think i stand on this some, some of this stuff i think it still holds up and you know what like you're not the first person to say that it felt like uh I'd read their journals mm-hmm. because I think, that, I think that ultimately what the book is doing is just basically formulating intuitions that a lot of artists have had mm-hmm. for a long time. And so it's more of a, I guess, a, an act of confirmation more than anything else, the book, that it kind of confirms certain things that we artists suspect is the case, but yes, it's hard to, to formulate sometimes,
0: right? Yes, exactly. Now, one question for you before we dive into some of the book is just your own background, because I know you're a fellow podcaster, you're also a writer, but you're also a filmmaker. Tell me some about the art that informs the work that you do.
1: Yeah, I'm a a filmmaker by trade. Um, I was once a filmmaker artistically as well, but I think over time, writing became my favorite mode of, well, even that's kind of simplifying it. But at some point, I started to direct for television. And so it became more of a question of, of directing or writing whatever was, you know, going to pay the bills. Right. And so less and less do I associate my film work with the art part of what I do. And so, um, but yes, I was in my 20s. I made some short films and I continued in that that vein and eventually started making documentary um i try to tackle topics that are relevant to my interests and to the you know the stuff we're discussing today mm-hmm. so definitely if, if nothing else i mean filmmaking has informed my way of writing or thinking about music or thinking about philosophy certainly i i think cinematically and that's just the way i operate but um more and more i'm finding that uh I'm finding new ways of expressing, um, you know, modes of expression that don't require two million dollars are always great. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yes. So, right. So,
0: I could appreciate that. That sort of thing.
1: Yeah. But uh, I certainly enjoy cinema and love it as an art form for sure.
0: Yes. Yes. Well, I'm going to dive right into some of the thoughts in your book then and see where we get. Sure. You were talking in chapter one, which is called a sudden explosive event. And you can correct my pronunciation. Is it the Chauvet Cave? Yeah, Chauvet, yeah. Yeah, you were talking about the Chauvet Cave, which is one of the oldest caves where they've discovered art. Mm -hmm. But you began to talk about this one phrase that struck me. You said, humans didn't invent art, art invented humanity. Yeah. Unpack that for me, Sam. There's a few
1: ways of unpacking it. I'll go for the, the kind of what to me seems the most obvious or less controversial way. And that is that if you look at the art in the Chauvet Cave, the oldest art doesn't contain any type of human figuration at all. There are handprints um, and there are other, we know that they're, We know the humans were making the art. But it's only progressively, over time, as the cave uh, filled out with art, that you see the slow emergence of human figures. And for me, that strange fact, that the first thing people would draw wouldn't be their loved ones or themselves, but animals Especially animals and, and abstract symbols and that sort of thing. I just found that interesting, mm-hmm. and and it it kind of uh, seemed to resonate with an intuition I had that the concept of the human itself, and therefore I think the, the the human being as a as a as a creature on this on this planet required the type of expressivity that we associated with art in order to emerge at all, so that it was only once we were able to see ourselves as aesthetic entities in an artistic conception of the cosmos that we actually became human. And the art, strangely, starts way before that begins. So that's what I mean by that. I guess what I mean is that we needed art in order to conceive ourselves as human. Mm -hmm. Um, On a deeper level, I believe that The universe and nature itself is fundamentally aesthetic. And we can maybe get into the reasons why I think that later. But once you look at it that way, once you see the universe as Arthur Mocken's word for it was sacrament, and I love that word, once you see the universe as a sacramental thing. I love that. Then it's clear that art, artistry, the aesthetic preceded our emergence within it.
0: Yeah, so then it kind of suggests that art and creativity is fundamental to the human experience. Oh, absolutely! It's not reserved for uh, a select few, but it's it's very human.
1: Yeah, you know, like uh, you know, Noam Chomsky is uh, obviously a great linguist, and some of what he's written uh, speaks to that—the fundamental expressive nature. Of the human, that humans somehow, for some reasons, for some reason, uh, reasons that are hard hard to account for in a purely purely secular view, uh, feel a need to express themselves, um, to express their being, and to express the being of the world. That's very mysterious. Mm -hmm. Like, it's very hard to explain that using the traditional secular models we have on offer, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. I think that humans are fundamentally creative, but I also think that that's because the universe is
0: fundamentally creative Mm -hmm. and um, we participate in that. I think that really hints at my own conviction that art is inherently spiritual, or at least art immediately takes us beyond the pragmatic and and positions us to consider the greater mysteries of life. However we interpret that, whatever names we put on that, it seems that inherently that aesthetic part of us, as you called it, the aesthetic universe, it it kind of positions us to to engage the bigger questions of life. Absolutely. And I think even the
1: most innocuous work of art, insofar as it is a work of art, let's talk about Degas. Like, I think that's the, the example I use in the book. Degas' um, ballerinas, right? So you'll have a, a painting, an oil painting of some young women getting ready to rehearse some ballet performance. And then you think, well, that's just, something in the world right but the fact that it's framed out the fact that it's shown to us as such immediately in my mind calls us back always to the radical mystery mm-hmm. like what makes um or to take something even more uh banal um there's a there's great moment in um tokyo story which is a film by the japanese filmmaker ozu where at the end the protagonist she's falling asleep on her tatami mat and the camera suddenly cuts to a vase in the corner of the room and it cuts back to her and cuts back to the vase and then just lingers on this vase for like well over a minute and in that moment to me it was like why are you framing this inconsequential detail in the scene Well, that's what all artists do. They'll take something that in itself may not have any obvious value, utilitarian value or even moral value to anyone like a a sunset or a vase or, you know, a a couple of ballerinas getting ready. And by framing it out, you are calling attention to the strange miracle of anything happening at all, right? Mm -hmm. The strangeness of just a vase sitting there in the corner, and the contemplative uh mood that this puts us in this confrontation with the with it calls us back to the mystery which i think we all feel like all of us all humans have felt at some point the profound radical mystery of existence and art is constantly calling us back to that i think
0: so it's it's almost like the content is secondary to the encounter that the content evokes. Yeah. Because you're talking about whether it's a, uh, I would call it a vase. You're much more eloquent, the vase. Oh, it's just (laughs) just a Canadian thing, sorry. (laughs) That's right. You know, whether it's the, (laughs) that's right. Or whether it's the ballerinas getting ready or, uh, you know, whatever it may be that the actual content is secondary to, I liked what you said, it calls our attention to it.
1: It does. It's there, there, There's that level. But the content, I wouldn't argue that the content is not important. Right. Uh, because what happens with content, what happens with anything if you frame it out of its usual uh, setting in the world? Like we live in a world where like the world makes sense to us. We use it, we, we interact with it, and we have goals in mind, and then we use aspects and parts of the world to achieve those goals. And some of them are setbacks, some of them are hurdles we have to overcome, et cetera. Right. We approach the world basically as a kind of in a pragmatic utilitarian way. But what art does is it'll take part of that utilitarian world and frame it out so that it all of a sudden it has no use. Like the vase might be very useful to the people who live in that house. But the minute I frame it on a film screen, I can't touch I can't use the vase. It's just an image. Mm Mm-hmm. And that calls me to the weirdness of the vase in itself. But at the same time, what it does is it shows me the vase in a way that I've never seen it before. And the way that I interpret that in the book is is by saying that it turns the vase into a symbol. Mm -hmm. And so the symbol, the symbolic aspect of art, which is super important, is where content plays uh, an essential role. Because then the vase becomes a container. Well, what does that mean to contain? What does it mean? You know, so you you are called to uh, interpret, right? You have Mm -hmm. to wonder why these ballerinas, why this moment, why the light in that way, um, why that particular note, and that need, that kind of like um, that feeling we have that what we're looking at or listening to has some kind of meaning, forces, uh, compels us if we're open to it to question, to search for the meaning, and that's where we engage in. What's called interpretation, right? So mm-hmm. we start to wonder about what things mean, what the content means, and and then an object which usually would have no associations with the big questions uh, suddenly becomes central to that questioning. Like the vase becomes a very important thing to <laughs> explain, right? Yes. And then yes. you uh, you think in terms of um, of symbols, and then of course that is the way in which. Uh, I think a person um, benefits from art. It's through engaging with it and thinking about the art and thinking about the symbols and applying them to their own lives and 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 working it through. There's a practice of art. Um, there's a practice of experience that like you don't need to be an artist to be into art. Like you can actually just read books and look what look at paintings and benefit from that. I think. And yes, I think as you mentioned, a very spiritual way. In fact, I would argue for in a religious way.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That kind of leads us back to our initial conversation about Duchamp, and I think he really stretched people's minds with what we're talking about here, where whether it was the snow shovel or a bicycle wheel, where he took them out of their normal use, put them into the context of an art gallery, and and infused it with a whole different set of meanings. Absolutely,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. In a way, I think that. You know, he's often interpreted as a a kind of revolutionary uh, modern artist, which he was, of course. But in a way, I think he was reminding us of what art's been doing all along uh, by doing this. And often he's seen as someone who was destroying an older idea of art. I think that he even believed that at times, that he was basically um, sending up the whole idea of art. the traditional ideas that went into visual art, like the traditional oil paintings and that sort of thing. Right. And yet I think that once you've seen Duchamp, once you've kind of like grokked what he's getting at, then you can come back to the oil paintings and go, oh, wait a second. There's a lot more going
0: on here than I thought there was. hmm hmm You talked about in your book how regardless of personal convictions or professional concerns the artist's power comes down to a sensitivity to the radical mystery of existence and the artistry and craft, uh, which the artist can channel that mystery into an object or a performance. And uh, you led that into a discussion about astonishment and how astonishment has both an intellectual as well as an emotional component. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'd, I'd love to talk about that some. Sure. How, yeah, how, you know, we're talking about these objects being recontextualized, being infused with a a spiritual or religious sense of engagement. And I think the work of the artist really is to, or or one of the works of the artist is to provide a sense of astonishment or call our attention to see something in a way that we haven't considered before.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's well said. Um, I think in a way artists aren't teachers so much as unteachers <laughs> they make us realize how much we don't know and they are engaged in restoring things to their initial mystery mysteriousness and so that's where the astonishment comes in right like mm-hmm. um you know that that was that that line about astonishment came from uh Diaghilev a Russian impresario i think who who when Cocteau asked, Jean Cocteau, the French um, playwright, artist, poet, asked him you know, what he should do um, next in his work, well, Diaghilev said, astonish me. And that's pretty much the <laughs> only commandment that the artist needs. Astonish me in the same way that I'm astonished when I look up at the stars, right? Like, mm-hmm. remind me of how weird this is, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think the great artists are all... Uh, engaged with the weird on some level, because I think the, the weird is the, just the word we use to refer to that remembering of the of the mysteriousness of things. And um, to, to be able to step out of the all too certain mode in which we normally operate, the world of tax schemes and uh, consumption and internet Firestorms or dumpster fires or whatever called, that world to be able to step out of that and to feel for a moment the kind of virginal weirdness that continue that continues to define everything even mm-hmm. though we fooled ourselves otherwise is important, right yeah it's a great it's a great remedy to a lot of the ills
0: that we have today I think. <laughs> yes I love that phrase the virginal weirdness come on with that <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> Well, you know, kind of taking this idea of astonishment to an, a, another step, right? I've I've often said that no experience of wonder is complete until we share it. Hmm. You know, and I, and and I know there have been so many times where I've encountered something that just blew me away, or it took me out of that normal day to day mindset and transported me into this aesthetic universe, to say it that way, to be able to view things from an elevated perspective. But anytime I go to that place, I always want to bring a souvenir back to my friends or to the people that are journeying with me. Kind of like a souvenir from the experience. And you said something to that effect in the book where you said that it asks to be shared with others in hopes that they too might experience this thing that has had such a profound effect upon us,
1: Yeah, you know? Yeah, there's a weird kind of evangelical component to it in a weird way. It's that you see, you see something and then you have, to, you have to share it. You have to, to the extent that you have compassion for others, you kind of owe it to them to share it. Even if it's really dark, right? Right, like some of my favorite artists are not. Um, I was th- thinking about this uh, earlier today. I was thinking about Thomas Ligotti, who's one of my favorite living authors. He's a writer of extremely dark short stories, but for me, a, a real witness to the mystery and to the magic and to the enchantment of existence in a weird way. Like it's not necessarily that you're always bearing good news, right? But there's something about the experience that asks you. Okay, now go tell people about this, right? It it or else if we didn't have that at that part of the impulse, then we wouldn't have art. You know, my cat might be having mystical experiences all the time, but I don't know it. <laughs> I just see I just see him staring off into the corner like he's seeing
0: something, but yeah. Yeah, so that makes me think you know the the shared component of art mm-hmm. is is part of the experience for me. Like the and you said that even with the uh, the analogy of your cat it's like the and and maybe Duchamp I don't I don't mean to I didn't intend to talk about Duchamp so much in this but you know he he had this idea that that the audience completed the art with what they brought to it yeah so there's a weird social life to the art I think
1: yes and I think again the best analogies we can find for that phenomenon which is clear like uh, you're a musician right Mm-hmm. so I've, I've by the way I really like the music I've listened to of yours so thank you um music is inherently communal obviously, but even in other art forms there's always this you know this this need to share it with the possible exception of poetry I think there's a lot more poetry being written than there is being shared I think that most poems are probably never shared, and that's something that's important but I think that art is, yeah, we feel this need and we feel this need to call, to, to um, it's almost like the artwork is calling for, you know, the way that Gilles Deleuze, my favorite philosopher, put it is that the artwork calls for a people to come. Like the Paul Klee once had a show and uh, the, fa- the painter Paul Klee in, yes. in Europe and he said the show was okay, but the people is lacking. Le peuple manque is the way he put it in French. Like hey, I don't even know if he said it in French. He probably said it in German. <laughs> but the way I read it was in French. So he's, the the people is missing. Yeah. You create a work of art for a type of person that you haven't yet encountered because you're 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 looking for someone who has experienced this weird singular thing that you've experienced. So you put it out there, but then a community forms around it. And mm-hmm. uh, in Buddhism, you know, they have the Sangha, the concept of, and it's the co- same concept in the West, we have the concept of, of a church, um, small C, right? Or maybe big C, I'm not sure. Uh, the church <laughs> the church, as a kind of weird, spontaneous community that arises around a revelation, around uh, a discovery, uh, an, an experience or an event. And I think that's happening. I mean, you see that all the time. I grew up with, you know, I grew up in the 90s with and music at that time obviously still is very important but obviously at that pre in that pre-internet time music became the primary way that kids would define themselves mm-hmm. and there were real congregations that formed around genres for better and for worse i should say but that that phenomenon that that you could just play a power chord in this way and sing in that way. And all of a sudden you've got punk and then punk creates a whole kind of world, a whole aesthetic, a whole aesthetic universe arises from that particular wave. That's something that's built into art. It creates new possibilities for being and new
0: possibilities for being together. It leads me to the next question that I wanted to talk with you about. And this is going to be a big subject. We could probably do an entire episode just on this question mm-hmm. but it's it's the difference between art and propaganda you know right. and and especially for a lot of the artists that follow the work we do on makers and mystics, they are artists with an interest in religion or an artist community motivated by faith yeah but they're also artists who really value authenticity and I think uh, there's always a challenge in those worlds where art and religion intersect. I think it's important to understand the difference between authentic art or, like we said earlier, experiences of astonishment that now we want to share this as opposed to an agenda that must or a message or an ideology that must be shared. and I, and I think um, you said in your book, you said proper art moves us while artifice tries to make us move. And I loved the way you said that.
1: Thank you. Uh... Yeah, I guess that was the, I struggled over that chapter so much. The art and artifice chapter was the hardest to write because I didn't want to act as though I could somehow be the arbiter of what is real art and what isn't. But my goal in writing the book was to really try to get at what is it that makes ha- Hamlet and an Emily Dickinson poem, poem and a, a painting by, I don't know, a Japanese painter of the 16th century. What makes all these things similar? What is it that they all share that we would even come up with a category to include them all, namely art, right? So Mm -hmm. as I did that, it became necessary to talk about stuff that said it was art, but wasn't. And I think there's a lot of that in our world today. And I called it artifice. And um, the idea is that, you remember, we were talking earlier about the kind of utilitarian, pragmatic, mode that we normally operate in, uh, that mode where things have clear uses for us, like a tree is meant for shade or a, an apple tree is meant to provide apples and a car is meant to get to work with. And that's what things are. That's how we normally operate. We reduce things to their uses to us. If you're making art in that mode, then you'll make art that has very clear ideas and that is telling its experiencer, its, its reader, its listener what to think about its content. And I think that the best definition of artifice that I can come up with is a work of art that contains its own interpretation. Mm. So that I'm confronted with it. There's only one way to think about what everything means. Like you can imagine a lot of Hollywood movies are basically coming in with very clear good guys and bad guys. And if you were to sympathize with the wrong crowd in the movie, the wrong set of characters, then you would be, there'd be a problem with you because the film told you what to think. Mm I think the great art doesn't tell you what to think. Yes. And um, that's what makes art very different from advertisements and that sort of thing. And I think that too many people have forgotten that and are trying to propagandize using art. And I think that some people think that that is the proper function of art and the only way in which art can be redeemed. I think some people believe that art is inherently immoral if it doesn't serve some kind of social political purpose. I strongly disagree with that way of looking at it. And I think that if you're if you have a conviction and you want that conviction to be true, then art doesn't become the means by which you express your conviction. Art is the means by which you destroy your conviction and test it. Um go the other way. Make sure your conviction if it's true if your truth is more than just your truth, if it's a truth that needs to be shared, then it will survive your, your treatment of it. Just put it to the test. You know, my favorite Christian author, well, there's several that I love, but one of my favorites is Dostoevsky. Yes. Who has probably produced as many atheists as he has Christians. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, right. <laughs> so like, but that's, that's how he bore witness to, his, to, to that truth, right? as he saw it. And I think that the act of propagandizing, of reducing a symbol to a sign, as I put it in the book. That's so good. Reducing something strange to something knowable and known cheapens the art. Mm -hmm. And your art will never be able to do what it would have done if you had just been able to let go of your own conviction. Another way of putting it, it's like it's like you're laying all your cards on the table if you're an artist. But if you keep the one card that's, you know, if you keep the one card that's you out of the pack, if you ups, uh, abstain or if you um, refrain from putting your own convictions to the same test that you're putting your characters or your or, or everything else that you're putting into the art, I'm thinking here are a fiction, I don't know why, uh, you are che- you're cheating. <laughs> In a way, you're cheating. You got to put it <laughs> all out there and the truth will out. And the truth might not be what you expect it to be, but... There's an inherent, like, art in itself is already saying something about the world, which I think is quite marvelous. It doesn't need another truth. It doesn't need an add-on. It doesn't need a a label to be attached to it to tell me what to think about it. It is in itself celebrating something very strange about life that we should all kind of just accept and and explore and engage with. But that is the danger, you know? It's really hard to know where the line lies when you're making art, you know?
0: Right, right. Right. You talked about the, the differentiation between signs and symbols. In your chapter on signs and symbols, you said that communication consists of reducing things to signs. It assumes a universe of transmittable data from which the depth dimension of the imaginal is absent. But then your next line, you said expression by contrast Opens onto that imaginal dimension. I like that differentiation that you made there.
1: Yeah, communication versus expression. That's something from Deleuze, uh from his late work that I really, really love. It was really helpful to me. Um, the difference between expressing and communicating—it's very different. There, there are banal examples of that. For instance, small print communicates whatever it's you know. If you get you know, you you buy I don't know you buy an IKEA a piece of furniture. And it's got all this small print about how to make sure that it's probably not a good example, but make sure that you don't get (laughs) injured or whatever. The, The small print is communicating whatever it is it's communicating, but it's expressing something very clear, don't sue us. <laughs> you
0: know, that's what it's expressing. <laughs> right.
1: We don't right. want you to read this, but we put it in. That's what it's expressing. That's why it's small yeah. print, right? So the yes. di- there's a big difference between expressing and communicating. You could be communicating one thing, but expressing something completely different. And being uh, human means being able to, to separate those things. A person that you live with says one thing, but means another. It's our job to try to find out what people are expressing beyond their, the content of their communication. So, like, artifice is just reducing art to the communication level. It doesn't take account of the weird, The you know, I was mentioning earlier Thomas Ligotti, this atheistic, nihilistic writer that I think is basically a Christian witness. Um, mm. the, the, the thing about him is that it's, that's where I get it. It's that I'm feeling the expression of something much deeper than, than the concepts he puts in his work might lead you to believe, right? Yeah, And I think that that's part of the experience of of encountering Ligotti is just seeing that kind of weird paradox.
0: Yeah. Well, I want to be sure that I have a chance to ask you to elaborate on this a little bit before we bring the conversation to a close. But we began at the beginning talking about the aesthetic universe and... I, I love that phrase to begin with, but I, I would love for you to tell me more about what you mean by the universe is aesthetic. Well, in philosophy, philosophers,
1: since the very beginning of like, let's just stick to Western philosophy here, uh, the pre-Socratics, the ancient Greeks. Uh, the philosophy game started in Greece with a big debate about what made up the the basic primary substance of the world and then one philosopher was like it's water and another philosopher said it's fire another one says it's earth you know air the plasma <laughs> you know or uh, <laughs> or and then pythagoras was like it's ratio it's number so there's always been this tendency as we try to think about the world to try to figure out what the world is behind its appearances right? The world appears to us in some way, but there needs to be some primal substance behind those appearances that would give the lie to those appearances. The world is an illusion and there's some kind of reality behind it. The aesthetic universe for me is a way to talk about the world that basically just does away with that need to explain things away. The world's not made of atoms or of pure mind. The world is made of bookshelves and smiles and windstorms and diamonds. And you know, like that, mm-hmm. that the world is made of the same substance as a story is made of. If you think of a novel, you say, what's the novel made of? Well, it's, on the one level, it's made of words. On another level, it's made of all the elements that the story universe requires in order to function. So the aesthetic universe to me is a universe that exists as it appears to us, that the weird drama of our lives is actually the what the universe is made of. Mm-hmm. And that we don't need to try to banish the appearance of things like philosophers and scientists do. What we need to do is kind of just celebrate the surfaces of things. Look at the universe as a kind of story, a kind of drama, a kind of poem. And I think that that's kind of how you operate the minute you start doing art. It's to think Mm -hmm. of the universe as a work of art, as it's telling us something that's not clear. It's giving us mystery, but it is not of of a nature that is completely alien to how it appears. We are given a world that is made of story, and we have to just kind of like accept that and then play our part in that story. It's kind of what the aesthetic universe idea idea means. But it's an idea that we're constantly developing on Weird Studies, and um, it's got lots of different ways of, I guess, of of being expressed. And I'm not quite sure what it means, really. It's just, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, when you, you, you have a moment and suddenly the dreamlike nature of the world suddenly becomes clear to you, the dreamlike nature of your life. Uh, it might be that something weird happens, like you see something strange, or it might be that you live through some kind of horrible tragedy or you get some kind of tragic news or some kind of wonderful news. And all of a sudden, the kind of weird, oniric nature of existence comes to the fore. That to me is when you touch on the aesthetic universe. And for me, that is, that is where you're closest to the real. Uh, the reality is closer to that than to any of the models that we put forward to explain it. Beautiful.
0: Well, I want to ask you one last question on this. And we were talking about art as an engagement with astonishment, and then we, we talked about sharing that astonishment with others. I wanna end by asking about the social implications and the function of art, because once, once a piece of art is made and it's presented, it, it suddenly takes on a social life of its own. Mm-hmm. But no artist can really predict how their work is going to infect, uh, infect or affect, <laughs> <Right>. uh, <laughs> you know, the people that encounter it. But I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on the social implications of art and, and the functionality of art in our societies today.
1: Well, that's a, that's a great question. And it's, it's a difficult one because you're right on, on you know, you had... Um, no, Richard Wagner's music became an instrument, I guess, for. I think actually, I heard it was more like Beethoven the Nazis were into, more than Wagner. But um, the point is that you can imagine how any work of art could be put to really dark uses by the in the wrong, you, could, you know, it could come to serve something that the artist might not have believed in at all. Right. You can't control that. Of course, that goes with any type of invention. You know, you could create you could come up with the idea of nuclear fission and all of a sudden there are mm-hmm. nuclear bombs and so in that sense it's very hard to predict how art will be used by the world once it's once you, you 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 let it out at the same time i think that the very act of creating art isn't so much a means by which the world becomes better but it is in itself the expression of the good of the world it's almost like through the making and sharing of art we are human we are able to connect with one another Marcel Proust said that art is the only way in which the experience of one human can become accessible to another human for him anything short of of art didn't allow for that almost telepathic level of empathy that art makes possible, the way it can bring you into the consciousness of another person. So, just doing that in itself is doing a great service to society, because it's ultimately what it does is it gives the lie to ideological dead ends and and traps that people fall into. The message of art is that nobody knows what the hell's going on, right? Mm -hmm. And so, the more people remember that they don't know what's going on any more than the next person does, that's a great balm, I think. It's something that can remind us that, that we inhabit a mystery, that we don't have all the answers, that there's more to this world than we think. And I think that just by doing that, art is doing us a great service. I mean, the world is pretty bad right now, but who knows how much worse it would be if we didn't have art.
0: Jeff, thank you so much for spending this time with me on Makers and Mystics. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with you. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Makers and Mystics and our community page at The Breath and the Clay. If you'd like to hear more conversations by Makers and Mystics, you can visit our official website at makersandmystics.com and explore our library of over 200 episodes regarding art, faith, and culture. If you've been inspired by the podcast, please consider helping us continue our work by becoming a monthly patron. Patrons of the podcast receive access to the Makers and Mystics Creative Collective, additional interview content, opportunities for creative coaching, as well as our regular book clubs and online group discussions. Music for this episode is provided by Celis and Songs of Water. We'll see you again next week, and until then, keep creating. The world needs your art.